All right, this morning we're going to be turning over to paragraph number two of our Confession of Faith. And so if you have a copy of that, you can certainly follow along this morning. And uh, before we begin, just a a couple of quick comments and quick statements that we want to make regarding this particular study. Remember, uh, this particular chapter is dealing with Christ the Mediator. And uh, there are two major issues that we're dealing with primarily in chapter number 8. We are dealing primarily uh, with these two issues. First of all, Christ in his person, and then also Christ in his work. Now, paragraph one has served as a bit of a foundational paragraph. Uh, We might even call it a a, a giving us the context from the uh, covenantal perspective. In other words, the covenant that was made before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ, in fact, uh, would be the mediator. Also, the fact that he would have a part of the salvation uh, pact or this covenant of redemption. Uh, Paragraph 1 also gave us a little bit of an understanding of the history of salvation and also the order of salvation, how all these things are to occur. So we spent a couple of weeks dealing with the prophet, priest, and king. And as we turn over to paragraph number 2, of course we're still dealing with Christ as the mediator, but as I just mentioned, we're dealing now specifically in paragraphs 2, three, seven, and nine, we'll be looking at the person of Christ. And then in paragraphs four, five, six, eight, and 10, we'll be dealing with the work of Christ. So this morning, as we look at paragraph two, I want to read the entirety of the paragraph. And then really going forward, what we're going to be doing is taking each one of these paragraphs and dealing with the the statements that the confessional writers wrote and just making comments on each one of those statements. But this morning, we're going to deal with the the subject of the identity of the mediator. Now, some might say we already know the mediator is Christ. Uh, How could we possibly learn anything more? More specifically, when we talk about the identity of Christ... Uh, We are the identity of the mediator. We're talking about his nature. And uh, paragraph two centers uh, primarily on the nature of the person of Christ. Who is he? So let's read this together. Paragraph two, it says, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So really, in this particular paragraph, we are seeing very clearly, as we kind of pull these phrases and expressions apart, we are seeing the full deity of who Christ is. 
But in addition, we are also at the same time seeing his full humanity. He's truly God and truly man. This gives us the identity of the person. Uh, this person is identified here in that very first expression. He's ex- he is expressed or explained as the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity. Now, chapter 2 of our confession dealt with this in detail regarding the second person of the Trinity. But here it is again stated that Jesus in his person is the second person in the Holy Trinity. That is his personal identity. That's who he is, the second person of the Trinity. We also see that not only is he recognized as the person, his divine nature is also stated being very and eternal God. So here in those first expressions, we see the confessional writers put it so clearly that the Son of God, the second person, his identity in the Trinity, being very and eternal God. That is the divine nature being clearly stated. It's being declared. He has a divine nature. Notice it goes on and it says, who... who, or uh, rather, the brightness of the Father's glory, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with Him who made the world. So part of His person, His divine nature, is the reality that He is God. He is God and He is described as the brightness of the Father's glory. It also tells us that He is of one substance and equal with him. One of the great disputes throughout Christian history and church history has been this very topic of the nature or the person of Christ. There are some who identify Christ in his uh, deity alone. There are others who identify Christ in only his humanity. Both of those positions would be incorrect. He is 100% God and 100% man. And even one step further, he is equal with him who made the world. He is equal with God the Father. He is not in a uh, less of a position. He is equal with God, which means being equal with God who made the world. That tells us that he is creator. It is biblically accurate to describe Jesus Christ as creator. There are some who attempt to separate that and say Jesus was not part of the creation story. That was just God the Father. That would not be biblically accurate. Jesus Christ is just as much creator as God the Father and the Holy Spirit. We need to keep those things in mind. Another statement, it says, "...who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made." Not only is this divine nature clearly stated, not only is his personal identity given to us, he is told that he is creator and he also is he who upholds the world. He upholds it. Uh, He is not uh, neutral in the upholding of the world. Uh, Christ is not sitting back and just simply saying, let this world take its course. Nor is he seated there at the right hand of the Father saying, uh, Father, you have this. I'll just sit here while you uphold the world. No, he is actually upholding the world himself. 
In the book of John, which is probably the greatest demonstration of the deity of Jesus Christ, it's found in the book of John. If we were to go through and do a summary of each one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of those Gospels identify Jesus from a little bit different of a perspective. Uh, Some more emphasize Jesus as a servant. Uh, Others more emphasize him in his deity. The book of John, probably unlike the other three Gospels, identify Jesus more in his deity than any other passage. Now, one of the references there in our confession references John 1.14, which this is a familiar verse to many of us, but it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse identifies God being made in the flesh. Jesus himself is God. As his divine nature is part of his identity. So when we identify Christ, we cannot just identify Christ just in his humanity nor in his deity. We must identify him in fully man and fully God. Now the confession does, now in the middle section of this paragraph, does give us this perspective. So we go from the the paragraph giving us the description of his deity primarily to the center part where it gives us now and emphasizes his humanity. It says, when the fullness of of time was come, take upon him man's nature, or he took upon himself. When the fullness of time was come, this same creator who upholds and governs all things did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature. So he is, he is taking on something else. He's taking on this humanity. Now that expression, the fullness of time was come, is a reference to Galatians chapter number 4, verse number 4. Galatians 4, 4. And if if you've got one of the copies of the confession that I gave to you, you have numbers that indicate the corresponding statement with the verse. But Galatians 4, 4 identifies this expression, the fullness of time was come. It says there in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Made under the law, made of a woman. Now, that note, Galatians 4.4, is also a, a historical note of redemption. It gives us the picture of when redemption, the start of redemption, when this picture began to take on this particular form. Jesus himself comes and takes on the nature of humanity. And of course, we know in Scripture and in in biblical importance, the taking on of his humanity did not mean the emptying of himself of his deity. Okay, there's other false doctrines out there that says when Jesus came, he gave up his deity. He did not give up his deity. It's going to be more referred to as he veiled it. And we'll see that expression in just a moment, that his glory is being veiled by his taking upon human nature. But we see there in Galatians 4.4, He says, and he goes on in verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So you see redemption is connected to Jesus' person and his work in humanity. 
It is an essential part of our salvation that Jesus Christ became fully man. Matter of fact, it's not even, it's more than essential. There is no redemption apart from his humanity. And that's a very important distinction that we have to make. But look what it says again. It says, now, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities. Now, what are essential properties and what are common infirmities? They are what all of us share together. We all have essentially the same properties. We're different people, but we have essentially the same properties. We have bones, we have blood, we have flesh. We have, we, we have, we have the, the appearance of humanity. We have, we, those are the essential properties. But I think even just as important, the confessional writer said this, and common infirmities. You see, Jesus Christ didn't just take on the appearance of a man. He actually became a true man, which means Jesus took on all the essential properties and the common infirmities. It's hard for our mind to understand this, but Jesus Christ got sick. Now, that's really difficult for our mind to grasp. Common infirmities. Think about the most common infirmity that you and I have. Jesus Christ took those infirmities on in his own flesh. We have this idea that Jesus is just, was just super and, and he didn't, in his humanity, he just avoided all that. No, he still took on these common infirmities, these common or essential properties. Jesus himself became tired. He became hungry. He became thirsty. You study the life of Jesus when he, was, when he was, came to this earth and was, was robed in human flesh and, and born in that manger. Uh, people have asked, did Jesus have to learn? My, my sixth grade class on Friday asked me that very question. They said, Does, did Jesus have to learn? And in essence, the answer is yes. But they say, but how could he have to learn? He's God. But yes, in the human form, he was just a baby. And you could just see, see the wheels turning in these kids. Because they, they're not thinking about the reality that taking on that robe of human flesh, he still had to go through all the things that a baby, an infant would go through. And when he grew, and the Bible talks about he grew in wisdom and stature, he was, he was just as much man as you and I. And it's so very important. To take on these essential properties and common infirmities, it says thereof yet without sin. And we'll come back to that one in just a moment. But what does it mean to look to take on all these things? And essentially what Jesus did is he looked like one of us. Now, historians have said this for years, and this doesn't originate with me. But have said that, and again, this is not meant disrespectfully, not in any way, shape, or form. But Jesus himself would have not been in his humanity anything more to look at than any of us. There would not have been something. There would, I heard one guy say recently, there was not a, an aura or a halo around him. When he came walking through the streets of Jerusalem or Nazareth or wherever he was, it wasn't as if he just looked different. No, that's what it means to have his glory veiled. When he took on the robe of human flesh, his glory, in a sense, is being veiled. To be veiled means it's being covered, not being removed. There's a big difference in having your, your glory removed and your glory veiled. In his humanity and in these infirmities, 
in these essential properties of humanity, his glory is being veiled. Yet the confession is very, very quick, and so is the scripture to identify this. Yet without sin. Now that's crucial. Without sin. Now there are passages that are identified there in your confession. Uh, first one is Romans 8.3 that speak to this reality of him being without sin. And again, these are just individual verses, and, and we, we know the way we normally do things, we take bigger portions of Scripture, but the, for our lessons this morning, we're just taking these single verses that the confession is pointing us to. Romans 8.3 tells us, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That key word is in the likeness of sinful flesh. It does not teach us that he became a sinner, nor does it anywhere teach us that he was even given the ability to sin. There's a great argument that's going on uh, for some reason, people wanting to know, could Jesus have sinned? The reality and the answer to that would be absolutely no. And there wasn't even the possibility of it. However, that's where we're taking these things and we're understanding there are so many of these great mysteries that also were pointed to Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 14, 16, and 17. Hebrews 2, verses 14, 16 and 17. We'll just read verses 14 through 17. Again, we're talking about Jesus taking on these essential properties, these common infirmities, yet without sin. Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Now that lines exactly up with what the paragraph says in the confession. As much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, as much as you and I have flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So you're seeing one of the main reasons why Jesus took on that robe of human flesh. He took it on that through his death, his death would destroy him that had the power of death, which is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconcile, reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. And then we know Hebrews 4.15, just a chapter over, again gives us the realities of Jesus and his humanity and the things that it allows him to be able to sympathize with, to have compassion about. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. It would be biblically inaccurate to say Jesus Christ has no idea what it is like to be sick. Because the Bible says he does. He knows what it would be to have those essential properties of our humanity 
We glory in the reality of our life. We glory in the reality of our humanity. But we also know these bodies get tired. They get thirsty. They get hungry. Jesus knows what that is because of his taking upon himself humanity. So these these things are so incredibly important. Now, as we studied earlier, originally when Adam and Eve were created, they were not created with sin. They were created sinless, but in their fall, sin entered into the world. And of course, we know that part of humanity, part of living, is living with the consequences of the the failure and the fall of man. So what, are, what is the means of this union? We're, we're looking at here his full deity or his true deity, his complete, his full, his true humanity as it re, with regard to his redemptive uh, qualities, his common infirmities, yet he doesn't have sin. But notice the confession also says how this union is put together or the means in which it is done. It says he's yet without sin being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit, coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah and the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. Joseph was not, in the biological sense, the father of Jesus. The Bible says the father of Jesus, she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, if we're not careful, we begin to say, well, that's when Jesus began. Jesus, we already know, has been from all of eternity. He left his father's right hand to come to this earth. He did not have a beginning in Bethlehem. This was the essential, the essential importance, and this is still one of the most debated reality, biblical realities around the world. The virgin birth. And it matters what you think about the virgin birth. It's not a matter of preference to say, well, you believe in the virgin birth. I don't. To not believe the virgin birth is to not believe sound doctrine. Biblical doctrine. If he was not born of this virgin, if he was not born in the way in which he was, then this essential humanity and infirmities that he's taking on. He's, he's taking on the essence of humanity's blood, yet he doesn't have sin. But this is in an inseparable union. They're joined together. Notice what it says. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Notice again. Two whole. That means complete. Perfect. There's nothing to be added to them. Distinct. What are the two distinct natures? His divine nature and his human nature. Now your confession points you back to a couple of verses. And these are familiar verses. Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. Again, part of a bigger picture here. but identifies and proves to us the reality of the virgin birth. Mark 1, or not Mark, Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. Now all this was done 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. You've got a couple remarkable statements in those two verses. You've, number one, you've got the fulfillment of a prophecy. A prophet said many, many years before this was going to happen. Not only did that prophecy say this is going to happen, but that prophet also gave to Joseph and Mary what you would name this child. That child would be named Jesus. Jesus was not an unusual name. As a matter of fact, when Jesus walked this earth, that name, you would have run into many other people named Jesus. It was not a standout name. And again, I'm not saying this with any ill intent, but sometimes people are kind of shocked when I say this. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? Now, that's not his, it's not Jesus Christ, like my name, Jeremy Cochran. Christ is not his last name. It's an identity of a title. But yet, this Jesus was different than any other. He takes on the robe of human flesh, no doubt. He's, he's born as a son, but he's also called the son of God. We notice that he says back in verse 21, and she shall, that's Mary, bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. So you've got the inseparable union between his deity and his humanity. Over in the book of Luke, chapter number one, Verse 27, Luke 1, verse 27. Also continues this, this picture of, of his, uh, this inseparable union here. Luke 1, verse 27. And this is an angel. The angel Gabriel is mentioned in verse 26. To a virgin of spouse, to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus." He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. Now, even Mary here identifies, how can this be? And when she says, I know not a man, how shall this be? This is a logical question being asked by a woman in her, her humanity. She says, how is this possible? How is this even real? Then, and the angel answered and said unto her, now this lines right up with what the confession tells us, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, the angel brings back into her remembrance about her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist. 
They had gone through, her and her husband Zachariah, had gone through a similar experience where the angel had come upon them and said, you're going to give birth to a son and you're going to name him John. John the Baptist. And the angel reminds Mary of this. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, John the Baptist had an earthly father. Zachariah was John the Baptist's father. Elizabeth was not a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin. That makes this the most remarkable birth in all of human history. Matter of fact, the only birth that occurred this way. There are no others. But it's interesting that Gabriel brings back to her remembrance, and I love this verse. We quote it all the time, but think about the context. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. It's interesting, you know, people are going through a trial and a struggle, and it's, it's, a, it's a fine concept. Hey, nothing's impossible with God. That's true. But notice the context. Even the virgin birth is not impossible with God. That's the true biblical context of that verse. And you say, that's even more powerful than using it in an everyday infirmity. You bet it is. This is more powerful than even that. Even if you're going through a sickness and I say, Everything, with God all things are possible, that's grand, it sounds wonderful, but it's even better when you say, it's even possible with God to conceive and have this virgin birth, which is going to be so important what we're talking about. And notice Mary's response. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So this is a perfect, distinct, inseparable nature of this union. These next three expressions, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Now these are interesting phrases, and I want to go through each one of these. The phrase conversion, without conversion, this is not a reference to redeeming faith or salvation. This conversion means that the two natures are not mixed. And what I mean by that is, it means that Christ's divine nature was not transformed into His human nature. But rather what happened is His latter, His human nature was added to the divine does everybody understand the difference there? There's a huge difference in what I just said. It's not, the, without conversion means Christ's divine nature was not transformed. His, his, his deity didn't change into humanity. But rather, his humanity was added to the divine. That composition or that, uh, without a conversion, there's, there's no mixing of the two. The divine, natures were, the divine nature and the human nature were distinct. They were not intermingled. And he also, they use the expression without confusion. Confusion means to be in disorder or disarray. Confusion can also mean to contradict. Or even further, it can suggest incompatibility. Neither one of those were involved in this joining of these two natures. Again, some of these great mysteries, some of these things that we talk about, they're important things to keep in mind. Without conversion, without composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man? Again, there is that distinction. All God, all man, 
yet one Christ. The only mediator between God and man. Now paragraph one had set the stage for this. Now we spent time talking more about his offices as prophet, priest, and king. But even in that particular paragraph, we know that the very ending part of the paragraph referred to his actions of a mediator. And that paragraph ended with the reality that he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. The actions of this mediator, this prophet, priest, and king were all according to to this covenantal agreement that was made before the foundation of the world. The reality of this coming to earth never ceasing to be God. All of this is pre before he ever takes on this robe of human flesh. Now, believe it or not, there was a time in history when this was one of the forefront greatest controversies on this planet. So we, we, we cannot even fathom this because controversies today often don't center around doctrine. Controversies today, now people tend to say, you know what, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, we'll call it a day. Which is a tragic conclusion. Doctrine is not left to our own interpretation. Scripture is not left to our own private interpretation. So, There were at times in human history where entire councils were formed, where governments actually got behind. We need to make a sound, declarative, final, complete statement on what the Bible says about this matter. Now, some of you, if you study church history, and I'm not making any assumptions today, nor am I holding it against you, I'll tell you right out, I don't have a lot of church history background in depth. There are dates you could ask me. There are councils you could ask me. I'll say I'm really not familiar with that. But if you have an interest in that, there was a particular creed or a, that a council adopted. And it was the Chalcedonian Creed. And this was all the way back in 451 AD. Again, we're talking about totally different times now. It became so important regarding the nature or the identity of these two distinct natures that they put out a statement And that is why and where paragraph two of the Confession of Faith is based upon. It's based upon the Chalcedonian Creed that was made by the Fourth Ecumenical Council that was located in Chalcedon, which is now modern-day Turkey. So in 451, as a response to heretical views concerning the nature of Christ, that was their entire purpose. We have got to put out a statement regarding the nature of Christ because it's being blurred and it's being taught wrongly. It established a one view, an orthodox view, that Christ has two natures, human and divine, that are united or unified in one person they made a statement that said that's what the Bible says and we believe it. Now again, we're talking about totally different times. But I also understand that doctrine is just as important now as it was in 451 AD. Now, it's Christ can be whatever I want Him to be. I can choose whatever church lines up with what my thought or idea of that nature is. 
They went so far, and I want to read this entire statement to you. Now, it is lengthy. I'm, I'm going to warn you in advance, but I want you to listen carefully because this is one of the very basis of where the Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, gets its entire paragraph on paragraph number two. So this is the creed that they came up with. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. That was an important statement. The mother of God according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, or one subsistence. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten. God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. One thing I was just reading it made me just sit up and take notice. They referred to 451 A.D. as the latter days. <laughs> you realize people in 451 A.D., had the same kind of feelings that you and I have even about the return of Christ. 451 AD and the council believed that we need to have a creed that's important for these latter days. You'd be hard-pressed. You'd be hard-pressed now to find a single council, a single church that would come out, make one declarative statement about the reality of this, that everybody would all in one agreement say, we agree. You would be hard-pressed to find a totality, even a majority, if you just put a Baptistic council together. Just a Baptistic council that would come in full agreement with that particular creed. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Baptistic council that would even approve of the confession of faith in its totality. Yet for many generations before us, they recognized these confessions and these creeds and these councils because there were statements. Now, were there false ones made? Sure, there's always been false doctrine. But the reality and the point is today, it's just as important today as it was in 451 AD to take a stand on understanding this identity and the nature of Christ. The line is being blurred. There are, there are people that even as we roll into December, when there's this idea and there's more of a thinking on the things about God, 
Most of society has no clue what they're looking at, what they're considering when they see a nativity scene. They have no idea what that even is. Not to mention that most of your nativity scenes, you've heard me say this now for the last six years, are not even accurate. They're not accurate in their appearance. They're not accurate in who the attendees were. They're all wrong. But most people just think about this baby. This cute baby in the nativity scene without ever considering that in that child are the very natures of God. The very nature of Christ. His humanity and his deity. A scoffing man says, how can a God be in a baby? How can God be in that what we, what we show in our nativity scenes is, yes, primitive, but nice, comfortable, stray, nicely built bed, which is not what it would have been. There's no indication of that. Jesus came in the most poor of conditions that you possibly... Think of the poorest person you know on this planet, and he was well under that. There was no, nothing that was giving him the glory at that moment. Yet, the Bible is clear about the reality that this is, just as our confession says, this person is very God, very man, yet one Christ and only mediator between God and man. There's a couple of, one couple passages, we've already looked at the last one, but Romans 9, 5, and then we'll look at 1 Timothy 2, 5, and we'll be done. Romans 9, 5, this identifies this, God is the only mediator. Romans 9, 5. Actually, in this case, let's read, a verse, let's read up, to, up to verse 5. Paul writes, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came. And here's the phrase, who is over all. God blessed forever. It declares that it is Christ who is in fact over all. What I think about Christ matters. When we use that of one of those five solas and we say in Christ alone, that is not just a cute little reformed reformation statement. To actually identify in Christ alone is to actually believe the Bible's concrete declarative statement regarding Christ, who is over all. Which leads us to 1 Timothy 2, 5, identifying him clearly again, which we did in our first paragraph when we looked at this as that only mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The identity of the mediator, yes, we could say it's Jesus, but it's also very important to understand that that mediator, his nature is he was divine and 100% divine and 100% man. And that, that matters. It matters not just for today, but it matters. One person with two natures, divine and human. Very God, very man, yet one Christ. 
one and only mediator between God and man. Okay? All right, so next week we'll move on to paragraph three, and we will talk about the suitability or the anointing of Christ to this particular work. So we'll deal with paragraph number three next week. All right?